After a break, um, we're going to return now to the final major section of the Gospel of John. So turn with me to John chapter 13 this morning. John chapter 13. We're going to read the first 17 verses. John chapter 13, verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that His hour had come, that He should depart from this world to the Father, having loved His own who were in the world, He loved them to the end. And supper being ended, the devil having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray Him, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into His hands, and that He had come from God and was going to God, rose from supper, laid aside His garments, took a towel, and girded Himself. After that, He poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet, and to wipe them with the towel with which He was girded. Then He came to Simon Peter, and Peter said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but you will know after this. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew who would betray him. Therefore he said, you are not all clean. So when he had washed their feet, taken his garments, and sat down again, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, Well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you again and we thank you for your word. Thank you for this record of the life and ministry of Jesus. And as we enter into this final major section, this upper room discourse, may we over these next few weeks and months have our knowledge expanded of your word, but may it not stop with an intellectual knowledge of your word, but may we be changed by it. God, there is such truth in this passage that would change our lives if we were to grasp it. So, Lord, I pray that your Spirit would do His work in our hearts today. In Jesus' name, amen. Imagine, with me, uh, two brothers who work for the same company. They want to impress the president of the company because it's been their dream that they, these two brothers, should both work as vice presidents for this man. 
They have an opportunity to speak to him coming up, and they want to impress him. So they brainstorm to think of what's the best way to present themselves to this man when they get to come before him. The day finally comes, they make their way to the office of the president, but they don't come alone. They bring their mother. The three enter the office, and the mother is the one who speaks up. Sir, these are fine boys that I have raised, and I think they deserve to to work for you as vice presidents in your company. Could you give each of them a position as vice president? How do you think that would go? How do you think their peers would respond? You know word would get back to the, their co-workers, right? How would the president of the company respond? They might go home without a job. <laughs> Some of you probably, no doubt, remember that this is exactly what James and John did with Jesus. Matthew tells us that their mother came to Jesus to ask that her sons be given seats with Jesus in his kingdom. That one son would be able to sit on his right hand and the other on his left. How did the other ten disciples respond? They were angry. They couldn't believe the audacity of James and John to come to Jesus and ask that much less bring their mother. That's not really surprising. The response that is surprising, however, is that of Jesus. Because he didn't get angry. In fact, in typical Jesus fashion, he uses it as an opportunity to teach his disciples. And he leads up to that well-known statement in Matthew chapter 20, But whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Now everyone wants a happy life. Does anyone here not want a happy life? Everyone wants a life that has meaning, a life that brings satisfaction. And most people look for it in some form of greatness. Feel the need to excel in some particular skill or in some area of life. You feel like you have to reach that certain level of greatness in order to have that satisfaction, that happy life. But Jesus taught something else. Jesus taught His disciples that the truly blessed life, the happy life, is not one that pursues greatness, but it is one that serves others with love and humility. And He demonstrates that truth in our passage that we've read this morning. I've simply divided the text into three sections about Jesus. One, what He knew. Two, what He did. And three, why He did it. What He knew, what He did, and why He did it. Let's look at what He knew. Have you ever, have you ever been sort of grumpy with someone? 
I know I get like this. Just pretend that you do if you don't. You get grumpy with someone, but then you find out who they are and your attitude just instantly changes. How about the opposite? Have you ever been perfectly friendly with someone and then you found out who they were and you just couldn't help yourself but have a bad attitude? (laughs) Well, Jesus doesn't act on partial knowledge. He doesn't make a mistake of what kind of attitude he should have towards someone. Look at what he knew, verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved him to the end. Jesus knew that his hour had come. Now, all throughout the Gospel of John, we've seen Jesus say over and over again, My hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. And finally, when we got to chapter 12, He said, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Well, what does that mean? It means that the time has come that He would finish the work that He had come to earth to do, and then return to the Father. It was now time that he had come to be tried, to be beaten, mocked, crucified, to bear the penalty from the Father for the sins of all who would believe in him, to be buried, to rise from the dead, and then ascend back to the Father. That's the hour that had come. The hour had come for these things to come to pass, and Jesus, according to chapter 13, verse 1, was fully aware of it. And being fully aware of what was to come, He still deemed it imperative in these last hours before His death to give His disciples an unforgettable demonstration of humble, loving service. Because if we look at the way the disciples have responded to Jesus so far, all these things He's taught them for three years, they don't get it still. He's taught, He has talked, He's done miracles, He's helped other people. They still don't quite get it. So He's going to do something Himself for them. He's going to burn this image into their mind. He also knew who would betray Him. Verse 2 says, Supper being ended, the devil having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray Him. By this point, we've seen it already, Judas was already planning to betray Jesus, but this was no surprise to Jesus. He had already said a year earlier in chapter 6, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and one of you? Is a devil? Obviously, the disciples didn't understand what he meant then. But not only did Jesus know what was about to happen, he also knew who was to bring it upon him, who would betray him. But Jesus also knew himself in verse 3. He knew that the Father had given all things into his hands, that he had come from God and was going to God. Jesus knew exactly who he was. Don't have this idea that Jesus came as a human and that. He he really didn't have an idea of who he was until the last minute, you know, and that God at some point gave him his spirit and enlightened him everything, and then he lived and he died, and that was it. He knew exactly who he was. He knew that he had all power and all authority. 
He knew that He was deity, that He was God in the flesh, the Messiah. He had full knowledge of what was to come. He knew where He had come from and He knew where He was going. And knowing all that, we might be tempted to think that He was ready to completely destroy these arrogant, selfish disciples who are only concerned with what they are going to get out of this deal. Especially Judas. But then that brings us to our second division, what Jesus did. Knowing all these things about himself and about his disciples, Jesus wasn't, surprisingly, wasn't moved to be angry with them. Rather, verse 1 said, he loved them to the end. And loving them, he decided to demonstrate what it means to humbly serve. Verse 4, he rose from supper laid aside his garments, took a towel and girded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Knowing what he knew, Jesus got up from the table, took off his robe, tied a towel around his waist, and began to wash the disciples' feet. Most of you already know this, I'm sure, but as a refresher, let me tell you that the feet of travelers in Jesus' day were filthy. When the weather was dry, your feet, having traveled on dirt roads and wearing only sandals, would have been covered in dust, inches of dust. But when the weather was wet, your feet would have been covered in mud only covered with a, a sandal. Customarily, the, there would be a servant at the door to wash the feet of those who entered the house. But not every servant was required to do this dirty task. They didn't even... J Jewish servants weren't even required to do this menial task of washing feet. Only Gentile servants could be required to do such a thing. It was the lowest task reserved for the lowest servant... And here we have Jesus, the Son of God, tying a towel around His waist and washing the feet of His selfish disciples. He washed the feet of every disciple who would desert Him at the time of His arrest. He washed the feet of Thomas who would doubt Him after His resurrection. He washed the feet of Peter who would deny Him three times. And He even washed the feet of Judas, the very man who was about to betray Him. Jesus did not serve His disciples based on what they could offer Him or how faithful they would be to Him. He simply served them because He loved them. Well, that's what Jesus knew, and that's what Jesus did. But before we move on to why He did it, let's look at this little exchange between Jesus and Peter. You can put 2B in your notes if you want. Verse 6, Then He came to Simon Peter, and Peter said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, What I'm doing, you do not understand now, 
But you will know after this. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. (laughs) In Greek, the you and the my are emphasized in verse 6. Are you washing my feet? Peter just can't believe that Jesus is doing this, this menial, this lowly task. Jesus says, you don't get it right now, Peter. (laughs) But you will. You will soon. He doesn't expect the disciples to fully understand yet what he's doing, but he's burning this event into their mind. This is unforgettable imagery. This Messiah, the Son of God, doing the task of the humblest servant. It will come back to their minds later. Obviously it did. John wrote it down. They will understand it then. But then I can imagine Peter, he, he draws up his feet. He outright refuses to let Jesus do this. You will never wash my feet. Whatever exactly his motivation is, maybe thinking he's sparing Jesus of some embarrassment. Maybe he's just offended that his teacher would humiliate himself like this. Peter refuses to submit to the washing of Jesus. So Jesus says, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Whoa. (laughs) Peter, if you don't let me wash you, you don't have any fellowship with me. That's serious. You see, what Peter might have thought was his own humility, not letting Jesus wash his feet was actually just outright irreverence. You see, what Peter didn't understand was what one writer said, the first condition of discipleship is self-surrender. The issue was not whether or not Peter had clean feet. That's not what's going on here. Jesus could have tolerated the smell of Peter's feet at the table if he had to. The issue is whether he would surrender himself to the washing that Jesus offered. Would he surrender himself to the will of Jesus in that moment? Jesus is teaching something much deeper than just having clean feet. He's on his way to the cross. His blood will be shed. He will die. And that death will make atonement for all those who believe in Him. In other words, those who put their trust in Jesus will have their sins washed away. If you desire to have any part with Christ, any fellowship with God, you must submit yourself to Him and be washed by Him. We're not talking about feet anymore. He's talking about your sins. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. 
The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day. And there may I, though vile as he, wash all my sins away. Friends, if you would have your guilt lifted, if you would have your sins washed away, if you would have fellowship with your Creator, you must be washed by Him. He must make you clean. Peter, in typical dramatic fashion, swings the pendulum to the other extreme. Verse 9, Lord, not my feet only, but my hands and my head. Hey, if I don't have any part with you, if I don't get my feet washed, just give me a bath. Wash me all over. In a way, I, I admire Peter for that. He still doesn't get it quite right. First, he's saying, Jesus, you're doing too much. You can't do that. And now he's saying, Jesus, you're not doing enough. You need to wash more than my feet. I think he has good intentions. I think he really does love Jesus. He really does want to have fellowship with him. But Jesus says to him in verse 10, He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. If you take a bath and you go out and you arrive at your destination, the only thing that needs to be washed at that point when you come in the house is your feet. The rest of you is clean. You just had a bath. How awkward would it be to show up as a guest at your friend's house and as soon as you walk in the door say, Hey, can I use your shower? I mean, that you took care of that before you went. Peter, you already belong to me. You are already clean. You don't need a bath. You just need to have your feet washed from the journey. If you're a Christian, if you have truly put your faith in Jesus Christ alone, you are completely clean. The atonement is complete. It's sufficient. It washes away every sin, past, present, and future. There is no stain of sin on you. In the eyes of God, you are as righteous and as holy as Jesus Himself because you're clothed in His righteousness. You have a perfect standing before the Father. You don't need to be washed again. Because you're totally, completely clean. Isn't that wonderful? And as we journey along in this life, on our way to our eternal home with Him, we periodically just need to stop and get our feet washed. Because we're still in this world and sin is still all around us, we're inevitably going to pick up some dirt along the way, right? We're going to sin. We're going to step in some mud. In God's eyes, we're still perfectly clean. We still have the righteousness of Jesus. We still have that perfect standing. But we must be diligent to let Him wash our feet. 
We must regularly confess those sins that easily ensnare us. We must be diligent to lay aside the weights that hold us back in the race. And you do that because He's already washed you clean. If you are His, you are clean. But did you notice the last phrase? You are clean, but not all of you. Why did He say that? Verse 11, For He knew who would betray Him. Therefore He said, You are not all clean. There was one there who was not like the rest. We'll talk more about Judas next week, Lord willing, but he is that stark reminder that just because someone participates in the things of God, just because someone has the biblical knowledge, just because someone can preach and work miracles, doesn't mean that they belong to God. It doesn't mean that they have been washed clean. Judas might not have left any tracks on the floor, but he was still filthy. Jesus washed His feet just like the rest. He participated with all the true disciples, but He was not clean. Some, many, I would say, maybe even some of you, wash your feet. You do the things that Christians do, but you are not clean. You need to submit yourself to Jesus and let Him wash your sins away. Okay, number three, why He did it. We know what He knew. We know what He did. Why did He do it? Verse 12, and we'll just read the rest. We'll read through verse 16. So, when He had washed their feet, taken His garments, sat down again, He said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, well, for so I am. If anybody ever tells you that Jesus never claimed to be God, you just there's another verse you can send me to. He said, you say, well, for so I am. I am your Lord. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Here's the reason. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. Simply put, Jesus washed the disciples' feet because he wanted to give them and us an example. Now, I don't believe, like some people do, that Jesus is instituting an ordinance for the church. I don't think he's saying that churches should have foot washing services. And we're not going to have those. You're welcome. <laughs> Though there are some sincere Christians who believe that. And I don't criticize them much for that. Jesus demonstrated this act of humble, loving service so that we may also love and humbly serve one another. At the job I had when, when Kelby and I got married, 
I had worked my way into a, a management position. And part of my job was interviewing and hiring new employees. And uh, all the good candidates, you know, they, they came in, they had their, their clothes ironed, they had their hair fixed, they had their practice sales pitches ready in case I asked for an example. But just about everybody I ever interviewed was caught off guard when I asked them how they felt about cleaning the bathroom at the end of their shift. You see, the way that they responded to that question, first of all, the company was cheap. They weren't going to hire a cleaning service. Somebody had to do it. <laughs> but the way they responded to that question told me more about that person than nearly any other question. See, some people just think that they're too good to do dirty jobs. Right? But Jesus says, I am your Lord and your teacher. I am your master. And I washed your feet. Peter was right to be surprised. But Jesus says, if I washed your feet, then you ought to wash one another's feet. If there's anyone who might be categorized as too good to do dirty jobs, I think it would be Jesus. But He did the dirtiest of all, didn't He? Not only did He wash the disciples' feet, but He died for them. He died for sinners like us. If He, the Creator and the Sustainer of all things, humbled Himself in that way, even to death, how much more should we love and serve one another? One of you asked me just this week, what more our church could be doing to reach our community. Sometimes it's easy to just throw money at things, right? And don't get me wrong, the work of the ministry needs money. <laughs> That's why we're collecting a missions offering. That's why we ask you to, to give weekly to keep the, the lights on and, you know, so I can eat. <laughs> I hope every one of you gives faithfully and generously. But sometimes it's easy to write a check, put it in the plate, and have our consciences eased that we've done our part. You know what though? Money alone never helped anybody. Only people can help people. Christian money can't serve. Christian money can't build relationships. Christian money can't share the message of Jesus. But Christian people can. Christian people can walk to their neighbor's house, see what kind of help they need, serve them, and look for the opportunity to open our mouths and tell them the gospel of Jesus Christ. Christian people can meet the needs of widows and the poor 
all while looking for that opportunity to share the gospel. Jesus' dignity didn't get in the way of serving his disciples. Certainly our dignity should not get in the way, should not keep us from doing the dirty work of loving and serving people. I said at the beginning that everyone wants a happy life. Everyone wants to be fulfilled. Everyone wants to have satisfaction in their existence. Everyone wants to have meaning. Well, here's what Jesus said, verse 17. If you know these things, blessed are you, happy are you, if you do them. You want to be blessed? You want to be happy? You need to do two things according to Jesus. You need to know and you need to do. It's exactly what James would go on to say. Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. How can you know? How can you know what to do? You live in this book. How can you know what God requires of you if you don't know what He said? Don't go on a mountain and wait for Him to, to speak to you. Don't ask Him to give you a vision or a dream or a sign. He wrote it down for you already. Do the work. Look at it. Read it. Study it. Know what God has commanded you to do. But knowing isn't enough. James said if you're a hearer only, you deceive yourselves. If you're a Christian, you want to live a life that's blessed, you must know and do. Jesus Christ gave His life for you when He died on the cross. He took the punishment for your sins so that you could be forgiven, be reconciled to God, to have eternal life. He gave His life for you. And now He calls on you to give your life for Him. The only life that is truly blessed, the only life that's truly happy, that has any real meaning, is the one that serves out of a love for God, a love for people, and an obedience to His Word. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. To what end? To give His life a ransom for many. We exist to love and serve God by loving and serving people. And the chief end of that is that we may tell them the good news that Jesus died to save sinners. Missions that doesn't get to that last part is useless. You can build a house for somebody, you can dig a well, you can buy their groceries. But if you don't meet that need of the soul, it's vain. It ends when that person dies and their body is put in the ground. But if you serve people and you look for that opportunity to tell them about the one who died for them, and they believe it, you've not only met a need in this life, but you have blessed that person for eternity. Let's be people who are willing to do the dirty work to love and serve and preach the gospel that Jesus came to wash away sins. Would you stand with me as we pray?
Lord, I thank you again for your word, for the challenge that you've given us, for the example of Jesus, who gave himself completely that we might be saved. May we give ourselves completely for your glory and that others may come to know you. If there's someone here who doesn't know you, if there's a Judas in the room, someone who perhaps looks the part, who participates with the rest of the true disciples, but they've never been washed clean, I pray that they would be saved. In Jesus' name, amen.